You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Everyone must have some thought that's going to pull them through somehow. While the fires are raging hotter and hotter. Sisters of the sun are gonna rock me on the water now. Rock me on the water. Sister, will you soothe my fever brown? Jackson Brown released his self-titled debut album, and this song, Rock Me on the Water, in early 1972, when he was just 23 years old. At that point, he'd already been writing songs professionally for seven years. Part of that time he spent in the heyday of New York City's folk scene. He'd written songs for the likes of Joan Baez, Linda Ronstadt, The Birds, Greg Allman, and Nico. In 1968, Brown moved back to Los Angeles and set his course to become one of the greatest singer-songwriters of his generation. Known for his political activism and his honest, self-reflective lyrics, Jackson Brown's 14 studio albums have sold over 18 million copies. Bruce Springsteen inducted him into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2004. Jackson Brown comes from a family of musicians, journalists, and dreamers. His grandfather spent a decade building a stone house in Highland Park, Los Angeles, complete with a huge pipe organ in the basement. My father played organ in silent movies, actually. No. Yeah, and there was a pipe organ in the house that I grew up in. It was in the chapel, and it was built by the Angeles Organ Company. I mean, I personally broke the organ when I was a kid because you could go behind the pipes and right. play around. It was like a secret passageway, but I, I must have put my foot through something, a bellows or something. Your grandfather and your father played the organ. You broke the organ. Yes. I just want to be very clear about that. Yes. Now, you know, I was reading about you. I mean, obviously, I knew something about you, and I knew a lot about the songs you've written, but I didn't know about your earliest life. Where when you were very young, you left to go to New York, where you were right out of high school. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Now, now why? What was, what was the calling to go to New York? You know, the music I was listening to was all coming from... Cambridge and Greenwich Village, you know, the folk meccas were those two places on the East Coast. And even though folk music was from all over the country, the people who were doing it were coming out of New York. And I would meet players that were playing in, say, Huntington Beach, you know, and they were from New York, and I, I just wanted to go. But my friends invited me to go to drive with them to, to New York. It took us three and a quarter days. We just drove straight from L.A. to New York with three guys sharing the gas, and there I was in New York, in the snow, with my penny loafers and my T-shirt, you know, it's like... You're a Californian by, by birth. Not really, I was born in Germany, but my, but yeah, my, my grandfather came to California when he was young, and so my family's from California. 
You went from Germany to California when you were how old? Three. Three. Who were some of the people that were influences you in terms of folk music? Well, Joan Baez and then Bob Dylan. Of course, he played a lot of folk music as well as, you know, writing songs. And Colonel Ray and Glover, and they made a record called Blues Rag and Hollers. And I like the blues. I listen to a lot of blues records. And that's what I mean also when I say folk music. I mean folk, you know, country blues and uh-huh. Mississippi John Hurt and, you know, Doc Watson and all these, you know, both white and black country musicians. And when you went to New York, what was that like? Where, where, where did it start for you there? You were writing music with who and where? I was writing my own songs, but I wasn't really writing with anybody there. I, was there for, I wasn't there for very long, three or four months. Tim Buckley was playing at this club in the village, and he was sort of sharing the, the bill with an artist named Nico. It was, and it was Andy Warhol's sort of bar that he set up to you know, do installations and Anyway, Tim told me Nico was looking for an accompanist, so I got the job doing that. Except he, Andy didn't want it to seem like folk music, and, and they wanted her to sing from inside of a plexiglass box. She didn't want to do that. She was not really trying to be a spectacle. She was trying to be a musician. So anyway, that's really all that happened. I lived on the Lower East Side with a friend of mine that was doing his conscience objector alternate service by working in Head Start. And uh, we lived down like Clinton and Delancey. And, but, uh, you know, I was only there for a few months. You know? Why? Was New York not for you? I got kind of homesick, yeah. I, I've thought many times about what I might have done had I stayed there, you know. One of the things that happened was I got robbed buying clothes. I had, like, been paid and I had a bunch of money and I wanted to... I, actually, it was a clothes store that famously Bob Dylan had bought a lot of clothes there and stuff. I went in this place... I left my jacket hanging on a hook in the dressing room and I went to go pay for the clothes I bought and the, my wallet was gone. And so I didn't buy the clothes and I sort of went home penniless. But about New York, it was interesting to me because people were friendly. I'd been living in Orange County where people were more or less hostile to people that looked like me. And <sighs> if you were a freak in Orange County, you had, it was hardcore. You had to be, you know... Committed. Yeah, committed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're, we're in Orange County. What town were you in? Fullerton. But I lived all over Orange County because friends of mine would get a house at the beach and they'd be living in Huntington or they'd be living in Newport. There were a lot of freaks. Now, when you leave New York, you go back to L.A. driven by work, music, opportunity, songwriting, or you just want to go home? Well, I always wanted to record my songs. As a matter of fact, one of the first things that happened when I got back was I was asked by a friend of mine who was in a band. There was a band that I hung around with a lot called The Gentle Soul, and I hung around in their house, and everything was so communal in those days. People just lived together a lot. So anyway, I was invited to audition for that band, and that's where I met Jesse Ed Davis, the great guitar player who played on my first single, Doctor My Eyes. The audition didn't come to anything, and I didn't see how it could because I didn't really know how to be in a band. I wasn't in bands in high school. I just, right. you know, I was just a songwriter. The other guy I met in that audition was Leroy Marinell, who co-wrote Werewolves of London with Warren Zevon <laughs> and Wally Wattell later. So it was an interesting group of people, but in the end, none of us joined that band. Doctor My Eyes is your first single you record. Yeah. And what's the path to writing songs... Because I'm assuming that there's a period of your young life before you become the Jackson Brown we all know. You weren't performing and you were only writing songs or you were doing both? Oh, no. I sang in clubs. Solo? Yeah, I sang my songs. And I really, I didn't sing so well, even though I, I knew a lot of folk songs. I mean, I sang them all the time. I sang blues and folk songs and traditional songs, and especially learned guitar things like Mississippi John Hurt or Dave Van Ronk guitar pieces or Doc Watson. I mean, it was part of a group of people who were crazy about music, and that was the thing that, that drove everything for me. But as far as playing, I guess I felt that I had the right to sing these songs as I wrote them. Otherwise, who would listen to me sing? As a matter of fact, I remember sitting up singing songs at a party, and this friend of mine, a good friend of mine, sort of gently tried to tell me, look, you know, you play really well, but, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't try to sing. <laughs> she's trying give to give us me the to name for the up, record you know? of the woman who told Jackson Brown, I'd cool it on the singing front if yeah. I were you. Who was it that said that to Jackson Brown? 
Well, her name was Ruth Ann Kendall. Ruth Ann, if you're out there, we wanted to introduce you to Jackson Brown, who sold 18 million records singing. But anyway, um, when you get back from New York, what's the gap between arriving back in California, wherever you are, and Dr. My Eyes gets pressed? You, get, you, you make a record. Years. It was years. Yeah. Was it really? Four or five years, yeah. At the time, it was, I was 18, so I made my first record when I was about 22, I guess. So it was about four years before I got anything going. But I, I'd go to the Troubadour and I'd sing on Monday nights in the open mic there. And I would play in little clubs in the beach towns. And I had so much time. It was fantastic. And also, I didn't even have a car for most of that. I finally got a car when I was about 20 or something. I don't know. I was living in Echo Park for a long time without a car. And my best friend just finally got sick of driving there to get me and bring me back to Hollywood. All I did was play. And I kind of longed for that. And how did Dr. My Eyes get made into a record? Well, that was the one song I had written that was probably up-tempo enough and short enough and simple <laughs> enough to make it on the radio. And you're, it was understood, I mean, at least I understood that it might not be your best song that gets on the radio, but if right. it was your shortest, fastest song, it might actually... <laughs> the right on, song. They're really serious about that. The records had to be not more than three minutes long. Matter of fact, 252 was ideal. And I don't know how you say anything in two minutes, but most of my songs were really long, five or six minutes. And Dr. Myers could be made into that kind of a song. And it was, you know, you were kind of obligated to try, but it never occurred to me that it would actually work, that we'd get on, I'd get on the radio. So you took that song to someone or someone heard you playing in the club? Oh, no, 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 no. It was one of my songs, like early on, like for instance, like in New York, I was making demo. I had been signed to a publishing company in high school. So I, I was given $500 advance. And I was signed away, <laughs> signed away half the song to a record company. Electra Records had a, a publishing company called Nina Music. And my best friend not only got signed to that publishing company, but made a record for Electra. So it was, I was sort of in line to maybe get recorded eventually, you know, if, I, if things shaped up. So... It's a long and winding road, but there was a record that got made at Electra, but it, it didn't, wasn't any good and didn't get released. So, Okay, so back to singing at the Monday Night Hoots at the Troubadour. And uh, eventually I did start being managed by David Geffen. And you want to know how that happened? I simply sent him a recording and a photograph. And the recording was of my song, Jamaica Say You Will. And it was, it, it was a recording made in a, a kind of a publisher's demo with Glenn Fry singing and playing guitar and me playing piano and John David Souther playing the drums and singing. And those guys sang really great. It's, I thought it sounded pretty good. And then eventually I, I called in to see what was going on. And I was invited to come in and talk with David Geffen. And for those who don't know, David Geffen managed... Laura Nero, he managed Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And his partner in his management company managed Neil Young and Joni Mitchell. He's really responsible for making songwriters sort of the focus of music in those, in, at that time. It, it was already happening, but he was the one in the music business that said, look, I think you know, this is what really matters. So anyway, so yeah, I met with him and he said, okay. I'll manage you. And I was like, <laughs> you will? Oh, good. And, he, and really the next thing he said was, you know, Don't, we're not in a hurry. You know, well, you're going to work on your singing, and, and which I was. You know, I mean, it was pretty much it was obvious that I needed to get better. So I spent time doing that. And um, also he, he took me around to a lot of record companies. He took me to Electra where I'd already been. <laughs> it was hilarious because there I am sitting in the office of Jack Holzman, whom I know. Yeah who had already signed me to his label and, and I had like, you know, asked to be released after they didn't release the album. But I mean, Jack Holzman, he owned the publishing company that owned my music. Nina. Nina, Nina Music. Well, Geffen asked him to, and he did, give me back my publishing. Have you ever heard of such a thing? No, no. It was wild. And to this day, I mean, I'm indebted to him. And, and he, he was a kind of... As exceptional record man. Well, while he he built that record company on the back of a Vespa, he literally recorded the artists, he mastered the records, he pressed them, he put them in a box on the back of his Vespa, and he took them to the record stores all over Manhattan. Good God. And he built Electra Records that way. And he was very opinionated about everything, music especially. But so he was kind of a hero to me. And 
Thought I was in his office, and he didn't sign me then. He Geffen walks in with me, <laughs> and he didn't he didn't think I was there yet. But he also took me to see Clive Davis. He took me to you know he asked Ahmed Erdogan to sign me, and none of these people would. And he decided to open his own record company. Now, when you throughout your career, when you're writing music, is there a kind of a a sense that there's a Jackson Brown sound? No, if anything, I thought I had some good songs and I was really just trying to learn to sing. And also, I had the great, great good fortune to make friends with a drummer named Russell Conkle. Russ was really cool and he was, people were nice to me. I mean, I, one time I ran into Jim Keltner, who was also very cool, and he was a drummer on a session that they were doing. Johnny Rivers was recording one of my songs and they befriended me. They were very, very kind. So Russ said, just so you know, if when you get ready to make your record, whenever that is, I, wanna, I want you to call me. I want to play on your record. So I did. I called the people that I knew and who had been friendly to me. And that's, that's, the, amount, that's the degree to which I strategized about anything. It's just like call up somebody you know is a good drummer and, you know, call a friend. I, don't, I still don't know how to call up somebody I don't know and, and ask if we can make music together. You I, still don't. I don't know how to do that. Who's, who's someone you wanted to call? I'm happy to call them for you, by the way. Hello, Bono, it's Alec. Jackson's feeling a little uptight. You said Russ Kunkel. Russ Kunkel and Lee Sklar played on that record, and they made it sound really... I mean, I listened to it the other day, and, you know, I spent years thinking it was kind of rudimentary and that I was not much of a singer yet, and I was... but. Really, they really imbued it with a kind of confidence and a kind of, they brought the best out of the songs. And when I hear it now, I think, this is okay. This is pretty good. As a matter of fact, Dr. Myers comes on, I think, well, this is really good. And by standards that I didn't even have at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this piano part that starts the song that goes, da dun da dun da dun da dun da dun Well, when I wrote it, I just did that through the whole song. And you, It's like some, give me a bouncy C. It was like, that kind of just trying to give you the impression that they were drums, you know. So when we got in the studio with the drummer and we said, well, we can't do that and what shall I do? And I just said, well, I'll do like the Beatles, you know, thump, bump, 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 bump. And, you know, magically, the great musicians I had, Russ and Lee, just made it sound incredible. So the other interesting thing about that song is it was recorded with bass and congas, not drums, and that the drums were overdubbed. And I don't know if anybody listening knows what the difference would be because mostly congas get added to something in American music, sort of an added element of percussion. But in fact, when there's a conga player in the band and things are based on that groove, when it's like taking it to the streets or Little Feet's incredible songs, you know, like it makes a huge difference. It's built into the DNA of the song that there's a swing. You know, Russell's playing this... And it gives it this balance and this swing that I think now is like, I really value it. At the time I thought, well, we're doing the best we can making this song that's a little bit, it's short. It's, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't think it was my best song. What do you think is your best song? I'm sure it's impossible to pick one. Oh, well. But what's one that comes to mind? What's a song when you wrote the song? Well, we're going to get back to that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to another place, which is that because you do downplay you were singing early on, and was there a period where, I mean, and you're a famous singer. So if you're, if you're insecure about your singing in the early days, were there songs you wrote where you said to yourself, I'm not going to sing this, I'm going to hand it to somebody else? Did you pass it on to somebody else? Well, lots of people recorded my songs before I did, but it wasn't that I had passed them to them. They did me a favor by recording my songs. I mean, like Tom Rush recorded a song of mine that I still haven't played. I mean, I was a songwriter and I, I wouldn't say I was insecure. I just knew very well that I didn't sing well. Were there, were, some, were there songs you wrote that you thought were better sung by someone else? Yeah, that's always been the case, actually. You know, like Greg Allman's version of These Days. I mean, I, I recorded that. I didn't put it on my first album and I'd almost forgotten about the song and he recorded it. But also, yeah, I got to say, like, that song was recorded by Nico before anybody else recorded it. And I played the guitar part on her record. And, it, and she, it was so unique, the sound of her voice and her accent and the fact that in order for her to, to sing the song and for me to play how I played, I mean, when I wrote it, I had to play it way up the neck and put a capo on the guitar so that it sounded very chimey. And the combination of that chimey guitar part and her wonderful, deep, 
voice and her German accent, you know, it's a very iconic performance. And I think it's more famous, you know, for her, because of her, than it is for me. And I've, a lot of people recorded, though, I mean, Tom Rush, lots of people recorded these days, Glenn Campbell. And funny, when Glenn Campbell recorded, he basically recorded her version of it. So you wanted other people to record your songs. But so you were similar to Carole King in that way. Yeah. If I hear myself saying that I was similar to Carol King. Carol <laughs> King wrote some of the greatest songs of all time when she was a housewife, you know? Yeah, the songwriters wrote at home, you know? And when I met Carol, she told me, I get the kids off to school by nine o'clock and then I've got a few hours to work. Because we were talking about work habits, you know, because I didn't have any. You know, at that time her daughter was about 16 and she came in the room and, you know, she's just dealing with life the way everybody, I mean, but that's, that's what's great about her music. It's about the fundamentals of life, you know. She was really a big deal to me, but then when she wanted to become a singer, songwriter, I think it's because James Taylor had really kind of shown everyone, and they were friends, you know, just she really saw that you could, you could actually be the person who wrote the song, singing the song, and that was, there was an added interest there. And I really believe that people should sing their own songs. I, I used to sing Warren Zevon's songs before I got them recorded, because I wanted people to hear the song. So I would sing in Mohammed's radio, or I'd sing Werewolves of London. And my record company saying, well, Werewolves of London, you're gonna record that, right? And I go, no, 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 I want Warren to record that. <laughs> you know, the real deal. Jackson Brown. This song, My Cleveland Heart, is on his new album, Downhill From Everywhere. you love conversations with pioneering singer-songwriters, be sure to check out my interview with Carly Simon. A little over 50 years ago, a show at the Troubadour changed her life. Three of us rehearsed in New York for three days, and then we went out to L.A., and by that time I had... Open for Cat Stevens. Open, open for Cat Stevens then on the, April then, 6th, 1971. April 6th? Yes. And that changed things for you? That was, yeah, that, that was a convincing night. We played two shows every night and four shows on the weekend. I met all all kinds of people. It, it was like the the lights were, were shining it. on me. I couldn't, Tag, you're it. I couldn't say no at that point. And, I, and even though I, I was suffering tremendous stage fright, I had various things that tricked me out of being afraid. Hear the rest of my talk with Carly Simon at heresthething.org. After the break, Jackson Brown talks about collaborating with a new generation of singer-songwriters like Phoebe Bridgers. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Tracing our steps from the beginning until they vanish. Trying to understand how our lives had led us there Looking hard into your eyes There was nobody I'd ever known Such an empty surprise This song, Late for the Sky, is from Jackson Brown's third studio album of the same name, released in 1974. Jackson Brown is on tour with James Taylor this summer. The pandemic delayed the release of his latest album and tour. Jackson Brown contracted COVID in March of 2020. I got it at a a show that was being done. We were being very careful, trying to distance and elbow bump and sanitize. And you got it? And I got it. How did you feel? What was it like? It wasn't a very bad case. You know, I didn't have any problem breathing, and I was I felt well again in a couple of weeks. So, And I could tell I was going to get better. I just didn't get that sick. And your son got it too, correct? Yeah. I came back from New York, and we got together. And, um, of course, my son and I hugged and, you know. Yeah, can't be helped. But that's when everything sh- everything shut down, and here we are still trying to get, get it back up and running, and it looks, it looks good now. One of the songs on your new album is called My Cleveland Heart, and I wanted you to talk about that, about what, what, what was the genesis of that song. Well, I, I happened to be in Cleveland and driving by a building, and I said, what's that? And they said, that's Cleveland Heart. And I said, what's Cleveland Heart? And he said, well, that's where they make the artificial hearts. And I thought, oh. I could use one of those. <laughs> Why do you feel that way? <laughs> this one. You need an artificial heart? Yeah, just like one that doesn't break. They don't ache. You know, they don't make mistakes. Right. And um, it, it's not, <laughs> they're not that much to the song, but it was really fun to make a video of, a, of me getting this artificial heart. And it's enormous, too. It looks made out of motorcycle parts and <laughs> sort of put this thing in my chest. It's like, ooh. Am I... <laughs> But it's satirical and surreal, too. And it, it sort of made a fun video because the doctors that are operating on me, the actual players in my band, I mean, and then begin to play, the metaphors are, are really abundant there. You know, I mean, they save my life every night. They save my life on stage. And in a way, they do, like, do a sort of heart transplant. 
How did Phoebe Bridgers get to become the person that's going to eat your heart? <laughs> well, was that was just, a, that was very spontaneous. We didn't, pl- we didn't plan the video for her, Eat My Heart. It's just the way that happened was, I know Phoebe and I'm a huge fan of hers. And as a matter of fact, one of the reasons I picked that director was that she'd worked with Phoebe and I liked the video that they made. And I had just been working with her because she invited me to sing on her song, Kyoto, an acoustic version of that. And she invited me to sing on it. So... I think somebody said, oh, you know, Phoebe could be one of the nurses in this video, in your surgery. And I said, oh, yeah, great. Let's, let's ask her. And she, she was game. So once I knew that she was going to be the, a nurse, I thought, you know, maybe, yeah, when they take my heart out, maybe they can, and it's gory, this, you know, maybe they can hand it to her and she could receive my heart. And then it was somebody else who knows her quite well who said, yeah, and she eats it. <laughs> it was her producer, Tony Berg, who said, they're going to hand her the heart, and then she's off screen, but then they're going to go back to showing her just standing off to one side with my heart. And I thought, that's not real. That's, they wouldn't do that, right? And I was discussing with Tony, and he said, yeah, she eats it, or she takes a bite, you know. And apparently it's like, you know, everybody thinks it's really kind of apropos of who Phoebe is. Phoebe's very, her songs are so dark. I know one of the things I love about it, about her music, you know. And so... That's how that happened. And of course, that director is so great. Her, her use of light and location. What is that director's name? Her name is Alyssa Torvenen. Uh-huh. She also did a great v- uh, video with Pink. But the album, uh, the song is called Cleveland Heart, but the album itself is called Downhill from Everywhere. Yeah. And what was the genesis of that? Are, are we downhill now from everywhere? Well, the ocean is downhill from everywhere. And everything in the song is something that winds up in the ocean. Plastic. It's actually yeah. about plastic, that song. Oh, yeah. I remember when I lived in L.A., and, of course, you'd see all the storm drains that said, you know, drains to the ocean. Right. And I never forget, uh, the L.A. Weekly talked about how 20-year veteran lifeguards in the beach department there in Venice were contracting kidney cancer from all of the pollutants right. in the bay. Yeah. I worked with Heal the Bay. The Bologna wetlands, they were constantly breaching and having these blowouts and during yeah. storms and yeah. all kinds of untreated sewage going into the bay. And Yeah, and when it rains in L.A., you got to stay out of the water because the runoff into the, into yeah, horrible. the water horrible. makes it absolutely toxic. Yeah. You know? What I wanted to get to is your activism. I, just recently, they closed the Indian Point reactor here, and I've worked to shut down utility reactors for probably right around 25 years now with disparate groups. And you, of course, had a very, very serious relationship with the anti-nuclear movement. I believe that Three Mile Island happened in March of 79. You helped form Muse that same year, correct? Yeah. And then you perform at the No Nukes concert in September of that same year, correct? Yeah, yeah. We had formed Muse and we're planning that concert before Three Mile Island melted down and before the release of that pivotal movie, China Syndrome, right. that really sort of went into the problems in, in a feature film. So all that happened all at once, and that gave a lot of currency and a lot of emphasis. At what point in your life did you decide to take that on? You're writing songs, things start to go well, David Geffen's representing you. When did you decide you wanted to get active publicly? You know, I was raised in the 60s, and so I was a member of CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, and I would I'd take part in you know, demonstrations. I didn't really have songs about these things, you know. There were plenty of movement songs. Actually, a lot of the songs that I knew in the civil rights era were actually from the labor movement in the 30s. So there's a lot in the folk music that has a kind of activism component or it has a social consciousness component, and particularly the early songs that Bob Dylan did. So there was a strong call to be involved and to do things that would move society in the right direction. And and I think that we, like so many people, we assume that that was always happening and that it was always going to happen and that the arc of justice and so on and all that was, it was just an assured thing that we were moving forward until, you know, about five years ago. <laughs> you didn't worry that it was going to hurt your career? No, no. And I didn't really believe that it did, although I think when you start writing songs about it, that's the question, whether or not people want to hear anti-war songs or they want to hear songs about nuclear power. It's like... If people are averse to hearing, you know, about society's problems, they're they're not going to want to hear it in a song. 
I'm a songwriter. I talk about life. You know, you got to talk yeah. about what's happening in the yeah. real world. You can't just barricade yourself off in this entertainment land. Like, what's going on was like a huge surprise to everybody in the height of the Vietnam War that you know, a singer like Marvin Gaye would come out with a song that was considered a protest song. Barry uh -huh. Gordy didn't want to release it, uh -huh. but it was it was too good. It was too true to be denied. And I think that, for that matter. John Lennon also, you know, in the height of the Beatles, you know, as they broke up, he began singing songs about his personal development. I mean, you know, he famously went through the primal scream therapy and stuff, but he began writing songs like, Mother, you had me, but I didn't have you. You know, Father, you left me, but I never left you. That was so powerful. That's what songwriting was about for me. And I mean, Bob Dylan was, you know, right at that sort of, crux of every one of these moments when things doubled down and people were singing about what was really going on in their life and what was really going on in the world. And all those people remind you is that this music has been made all along. I mean, there's songs, Woody Guthrie songs and Bob Dylan songs and Pete Seeger songs, Joan Baez. This is a big part of what music has always been. And it was only in Hollywood that you were sort of told, don't try to make any political points here. Maybe it's New York too. Maybe it's simply the hierarchy, the financial hierarchy of the country. You know, doesn't want anybody waking up. Singer, songwriter, and activist, Jackson Brown. When we return, Jackson Brown talks about the songs that still move him to tears. Follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a review. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, 
HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Running on Empty is the title track to Jackson Brown's 1977 live album recorded at the Meriwether Post Pavilion in Columbia, Maryland. Brown was part of L.A.'s Laurel Canyon music scene in the 1970s. Musicians like Joni Mitchell, Bonnie Raitt, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and the Eagles often dropped by each other's houses to play music together. Brown still marvels at how he was able to meet some of his heroes. From the beginning, I I met people that I really had a huge admiration for. Like David Crosby, you know, sang on my first album. I mean, he sort of, it's almost like being knighted or something, you know, like (laughs) like, he gave me the accolade of being, of singing harmony on four or five of my songs. And I really learned so much of how to work, how to get what I, I get in the studio from him. And there was a concert I did one time where Crosby, Sills, and Nash were there, but Neil wasn't there. And I, w- I was on stage. There's a picture of me with Crosby, Sills, Nash, and Brown. It's like, it was like, I thought, well, that's wild, you know? Yeah. And it was a long time ago. But I, I got to say, the people that I admire the most are people I'm still very shy about and don't even know how to overcome that, my admiration, enough to be really, really good friends with. I mean, I can't quite get over it you know, what they mean to me and what the music meant to me. Springsteen inducted you into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm. Is he a friend of yours and someone you admire? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, and he, and <laughs> we met, <laughs> we met at a gig that we were both doing at Villanova. And he actually, he was opening for me and, and I'd never seen him. I, I, I'd met him, we already knew each other because he came and did a guest set when I was playing acoustically at this club called The Main Point in Philadelphia. And so we knew each other and I knew his music and saw me that I was doing this gig with Bruce and that he was, you know, that I was, he said, you what? You were, you were gonna follow Bruce? Oh, I don't know. I don't think you should do that. And it, it really bothered me, pissed me off. I said, what do you mean? I'm gonna like, but then I saw this show and it was really, I mean, I saw what he was doing and it was just astounding. He's a thing unto himself, and he amplified so much of what he saw in rock and roll to a degree to almost make it into another art form. But I got to say, I feel quite apart from all of that. I mean, I, I try to learn from everything that I, that I love. I try to take it in and learn part of it or some, how, how it applies to what I want to do. But I, I feel like what I do is quite different. I mean, I've, I'm always put together with the Eagles, but when I think about it, we really wrote about very different things. And for that matter, like, Take It Easy is a very, you know, it's a song that I wrote with Glenn Fry, and so I'm linked in that way forever, and I'm and very happy about it, but it wouldn't have been that song if Glenn Fry had not done what he did. He wrote about what he writes about, I write about what I write about, and like, standing on the corner in Winslow, Arizona, I see an Indian guy. I see a tall Indian guy with a white cowboy hat, you know, turquoise shirt, standing on the corner, and I probably would have written about him. And of yeah. course, Glenn... Instead, you wrote about, there's a girl, my lord, in a flatbed Ford. Yeah, slowing down to look at me. Slowing down you know, to take a look at me. That's pure Glenn Fry. That's like... That, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've always said, you musicians have this beautiful reality. Music is so much more powerful than film and television because you can consume it anywhere, in the shower, while you're having yeah. sex, while you're jogging, while you're in the car. Music is in our lives in a way that you don't have to right. make that kind of appointment visually with movies and TV. And uh, how beautiful for you that you can just sit down and write, and you can just sit down and play, and it's all self-generated. It's you. It comes from you. Yeah. And the, and, 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 and the film business, it's so collaborative. But Who's one example or more of someone you always dreamed of working with and you wish you'd been able to work with them that you just love their music from any generation? Oh, God. There are so many. 
singing with Phoebe Bridges was was a big deal for me because I, I love somebody's. I mean, maybe I'd like to do something with Lucinda Williams. You know, she's one of my favorites, and I don't know how she does what she does. It's just so mysterious to me <laughs> that I can't figure out how I bring that to you know bring that about. I guess you'd have to write a song together or something. So being invited, it's, you know, it's almost the necessary component for me. So who do I want to call me up and invite to <laughs> sing, sing yeah. with them or write a song with? Lucinda would be great. Uh, I, you know, I love women writers, you know, women songwriters. I, I, Sean Colvin. But I don't think of it like that. I got to play with some wonderful musicians just last weekend we did a live stream uh, event for organization called plastic pollution coalition and the the lineup it was everybody sang one song by themselves then one song with somebody else but it was ben harper keb mo mandy moore taylor goldsmith and anara george who's my goddaughter but it's also who's like a, this the singer in the great group the bird and the bee and she's been in a bunch of bands and is an artist in her own right but uh, also a group called the Watkins Family Hour, which are Sarah and Sean Watkins, who I've played with before, so I can't like name them, but I just to show you, I mean, st when stuff happens, it happens by accident. It's almost got to be an accident. Like I told you, I can't call people and say, I want to write a song with you. Matter of fact, some of those people have invited me to write a song with them, and I don't know how to even... I don't even know I, that I can accept that offer, you know? Like, I get. I want to see get, that phone call. I want to see you at your house and someone you love and admire and closer because you know something, man? It's just time has come. The time has come for you and I to just do this, man. We got to <laughs> do this song. We, you know, we, we talked about it in London. We talked about it in Rio. I saw you get at the airport in Miami and we talked about it. And now the time has come for us to do that song. And you're like, uh, yeah, I'm going to call you back. I'll call you back tomorrow. <laughs> I have tremendous uh, performance anxiety. You still do? Look, Carol King asked me to, let's write, get together and write a song. She came over to my house, and we spent afternoon, I made a tape of the thing, you know, and we, we started hitting an idea there. And I'm, that was like 30 years ago. I'm still working on that song. I always tell them, <laughs> look, I'm the slowest writer you ever, you know. We're going to say that. Thank you for listening to my interview with Jackson Brown, the slowest writer in rock and roll history. Is there a song, because your songs are so emotional, some of them. They're very powerful emotionally. Mm. And is there a song where when you play it, it still moves you? Well, honestly, this is sound like bragging, but they that's what they do to me. Not every song is that right. kind of a song, but I mean, there are a number of songs that do that to me. And that's what I learned going out solo acoustic was that that's the only business I have being there is that those, this song still move me and it's real because you're pretty much naked when you're up there with just by yourself but I would say that there was a song on my recent record that I was having trouble finishing because I kept crying as I was trying to I mean they weren't even my lines I was collaborating with a guy on the song called love is love it's a song that I wrote in Haiti, and we were talking about this guy who's a priest that has built schools and hospitals in Haiti, and he rides around on a motorcycle, and he's in this song. And I, set the, I say, Rick rides a motorbike through the worst slums of the city. And, I, and my friend, I said, well, how, what would you say about Father Rick? And he says, well, the father and the doctor to the poorest of the poor. And for some reason, that just messed me up. Because I've seen the work that he's done, and I've seen the people that he helps and ministers to, and it does now. It gives me chills to say those words, and I, I wouldn't. I didn't write them. That my my collaborator David Bell wrote those words. But every time I'd sing that, I mean, it had, and I began laughing about it to others. But I say, I'm trying to finish the song, but this song has like a very big sob factor yeah. in it. I mean, yeah. it's like messing me up to say these lines. There was a line in Late for the Sky that did that same thing when I wrote it. But it, by the time it's a song. It doesn't make me cry. But you know who does that? Like Bonnie Raitt sings Love Has No Pride. And she would cry real tears all through the song. She like just, everybody cried. I mean, it's like that she was getting through it was kind of a miracle. But that just happens to her when she sings that song. And I, I don't know how she can sing and cry, but, but she did. Also, when we were at the Hall of Fame anniversary show and Crosby, Sills and Nash hosted Bonnie and hosted me and hosted James Taylor. She sang Love Has No Pride with David and Graham. And she, she did it again. She just brings it to that place where that <clears> song, <throat> she inhabits that song. It's so, it's so real that, I mean, she just comes to tears and brings so many other people to tears too. 
You know what song you sing that is so moving to me? I mean, the most, I'm not going to say it's the most beautiful song because you have a lot of beautiful songs, but I love Linda Paloma. That's a beautiful song. Wonderful. Thank you. What was the inspiration for that song? Well, I wrote that for my wife and my first wife, and we, we spent the whole first month we knew each other in Mexican restaurants listening to mariachi music and drinking. They would always play her this song, Cucurucucu La Paloma. So I wanted to write her a, a Paloma song, you know. And they would really sing to her. She was really beautiful. And she knew that song, but when I, when I wrote it, of course, it was sometime after that. But it was a tribute to her, really. That's how yeah. the song came about. Well, listen, I'm glad you're healthy. Best of luck on the tour with James Taylor, although you don't need luck when it's the two of you. It sounds like a lock to me. It'll be great. And thank you so much for doing this with us. Well, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you. Jackson Brown. This is Linda Paloma from his fourth album, The Pretender. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. At the moment the music began And you heard the guitar player starting to sing You were filled with the beauty that ran through it you imagined Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.